0: I grew up without a dad in the house, and I remember when I was about fifth grade, I got to spend some time with my dad for the first time that I'm remembering. And one of the things I caught myself doing several times was just kind of staring at him, like looking at his hands, and then I would look at my hands to see if our hands lined up, or seeing the size of his legs or his size 14 shoes that I would one day have and wondering if my feet were going to get that big. Uh, And just probably like, at least I noticed with, with, with my kids, they would just, they would just, they would compare themselves with me or their mom. And I noticed myself doing that with my dad when I, in fifth grade, have that memory of spending that first time with him in my life. And as we've been going through this series on the Ten Commandments, I've heard a few of you say, or I feel myself, this is heavy. It's heavy because you're seeing kind of like a major artery of what God reveals about his holiness, about our sinful condition, about our need for Christ. It would be easy if the commandments were just at the surface level. Hey, I not you know the sixth commandment hadn't killed somebody in a couple weeks I'm good right like I mean it would be easy for that simple but when the commandment ultimately as Jesus takes it in the New Testament applies to hate and anger boy that that hits us all it's heavy So I want to remind you this morning like that meeting I had with my dad in fifth grade here's what we're doing We gather each week as the family of God specifically all of us are his children and we look to our Father. We see how big and strong he is, his perfection and his holiness. and we look at ourselves. We see how he cares for us and loves for us, and we want to hear from him. We want to learn from our Father in relationship with him. And we're reminded that as much as there is real truth and real holiness that is communicated, that there is real grace and provision that is simultaneously given. Remember, if if you're new with us, I I shared this earlier in the series. The Ten Commandments are all written in the singular. It's not a y'all shall not murder. That you is singular. Kind of befuddled interpreters for centuries. Why would he make it singular if it's commanded to all God's people? Because there was only one person who would fulfill the command. There was only one person who would obey the command, you shall not murder. There was only one person who would obey the command, you shall not steal, and it was Jesus Christ. So even as we feel the weight of the perfection of our Father, the size and the magnitude, we want to hear from him as his children. There's grace. Let's pray as we turn to these texts. Father, help us to see with our eyes the beautiful things in your law. Help us to apply them to us. Father, may you, by your Spirit, apply them to our lives. Help us, your children, look to our Father, and to see what is good and is right, and what is true and beautiful, and to be in loving communion with God the Father, in the Son, and through the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I start each week explaining kind of a kind of a, a basic plain sense understanding of what the commandment is asking, or specifically, in most cases, forbidding. Of the Ten Commandments, eight of them are negative, negating something. So the first thing I'd say this morning is this: the eighth commandment forbids stealing from or manipulating others for material or financial gain. The commandment assumes, for example, that people will have personal possessions and that such property should be respected. But the commandment goes beyond that. It is ultimately addressing the evil desire that we may have, what motivates the act of stealing, the command gets to. It addresses the desire for material or financial gain and prohibits Therefore, acting on those desires. For example, Heidelberg Catechism 110. I have it in your notes. Listen to how it frames the Eighth Commandment. Question 110: What does God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? The answer: God forbids not only outright theft and robbery punishable by law. Notice that first sentence, right? Like clearly, what the what what every community will naturally understand arguably by natural law, as something that's wrong and should be punished is part of what the commandment is suggesting. But also look at sentence two in that answer to Heidelberg 110. But in God's sight, theft also includes all scheming and swindling in order to get our neighbor's goods for ourselves, whether by force or means that appear legitimate, such as inaccurate measures of weight, size, or volume, fraudulent merchandising, counterfeit money, excessive interest, or any other means forbidden by God. In in fact, that second sentence in that Heidelberg 110 could have said, but in God's sight, theft also includes the heart, not just the hands. And we've seen this with every commandment. With every commandment, and we'll look at this even more deeply when we turn to Matthew 6 and look at Jesus' application of such a command. It always goes to the heart, not just what we end up doing with our hands, but even what we're desiring. Notice how Heidelberg 110 ends, and we'll get to this in a moment. In addition, God forbids all greed. Again, if you came in this morning like, well, I haven't stolen in years, or at least months. But have your eyes looked? Has your heart longed? Have you hoarded in some way? That old greed pretty much hits all of us. God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Again, note that statement. We'll return to that. The Eighth Commandment is demanding that we are honest and above board, that we are not manipulating and certainly not stealing from others for financial or material gain. It's not always easy. One of my professors at Trinity, Bob Yarborough, he's at Covenant Seminary now in St. Louis. He was a logger, lumberjack in his early years, as he was earning money as a young man and as he was providing for his family. Uh, I remember learning this in an interesting way. I was taking a summer class at Trinity, and we're out in in this kind of near this pond on Trinity's campus in Deerfield, Illinois, and out walks. Professor Yarborough looked half cowboy, half robocop with metal and ropes and special boots on, and he would walk over toward one of these 60, 70-foot trees, and even in his early to mid-50s, he climbed up that tree like it was nothing and would yell down, you might want to move, stuff's going to be dropping. And he's cutting off old dead logs, because that's what he'd done for years, and he served his seminary community by doing that even still. He tells the story that when he, when he was doing this as full-time employment to care for his wife and his two sons, it was standard practice for loggers and woodworkers that whatever you cut, you'd get paid two-thirds the amount. Whatever weight you gave, the person paying you would reduce it by a third because they just knew that everybody lied about how much, weight how much wood they cut. So the standard practice was, whatever you gave, you're getting paid exactly two-thirds for that, and so the norm in that field was, you just got to raise your weights. Everyone's doing it, he explained to me. Everybody would raise their weights. He said, so he was faced with this dilemma. What does he do? I mean, it's common practice, right? I mean, everyone's doing... There, there are, if, I, if I say I did such and such, I'm only getting two-thirds to pay for it because they think I'm doing what everybody else is doing, so might as well just give the higher weight anyway. But he didn't feel the right to do that. He said it actually forced him, and at times to some of his own frustration, to work harder than everybody else because he would only get paid for two-thirds of the work that he did. The field was so corrupted. Remember what the Heidelberg says increased measurements of weight, size, or volume. Heidelberg would say, and Bob, a good Presbyterian raised as a young boy, would say, I I memorized Heidelberg Catechism 110. I know the Eighth Commandment. I can't raise the weight, even if it hurts me financially. So what should the Christian do in the complexities of markets and business and personal dealings for material financial gain, when the system itself is even corrupt and distorted, what would you do? The eighth commandment makes a strong statement that it forbids not just stealing from, but even manipulating for material or financial gain. If that's for what it forbids, what does it Demand. Remember, with each of these commandments, we not only often see a negative being commanded, but something positive is being exhorted. Like, what is it ultimately trying to get us to do and see? The Eighth Commandment demands that Christians set their hearts on true treasures. Brothers and sisters, this commandment is a very difficult one to address this morning. It's difficult because we live in the richest nation in the world. And even in our particular community, many or most of the people with whom we associate or are part of this local body are quite simply richer than the majority of people on the planet. We're so wealthy, we don't even know how wealthy we are. Yet the reality is we don't even feel wealthy. Like when we think of wealth, we think of quarterbacks from an unnamed team or something. Signing $150 million guaranteed contracts. Now that to us is wealthy. Yet compared to the majority of people, get this, the majority of Christians around the world, we are rich. But it feels neutral to us. It feels natural. The Eighth Commandment, like a physician with a scalpel we'll want to penetrate through the surface, the neutrality of it, and get to our hearts. Because theft is a form of practical idolatry. It is a form of service to money and possessions. It's worshiping material things. It's one of our world's most revered idols It was such a big deal that Jesus actually referred to money and wealth as its own religion. Look at our text in Matthew 6. Jesus' statement says this: that that Bev read for us a few minutes ago: Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And here in verse 21, where even Vera spoke to our kids, but Jesus here speaks to all God's children. Verse 21 says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. One of the the truths that the church has long believed about sitting under God's Word week in and week out, is that beyond just any kind of, any kind of working that a, a speaker would do or trying to apply these verses to our text that will actually be the Spirit of God through the proclaimed Word that would minister to each of us. How might the Spirit minister to us out of verse 21? Where is your treasure? Like it might not even be a question you want to answer today. It might not be one that you want to have exposed, but what do you really treasure? Where's your heart? Listen to Jesus' warning if we don't expose it and look for it. The eye is the lamp, verse 22, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Then, If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The eye is, is, is here being portrayed as an analogy for what you long for, what you desire, what you crave. And if you're craving the right things, it is full of light and goodness and truth. But if you're craving the wrong things how great is the darkness, verse 24, or verse 23 ends. Then Jesus, here's where Jesus describes literally money as another god, as its own religion. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And again. without even looking at that last phrase that's about to come, you can hear that and say, agreed. Like, you can only have one, like, one you obey, the other one you have to reject. Like, you can only have two masters. Great. And then Jesus throws this out there. You cannot serve God and money. Based on his analogy, he's claiming it is a master that will want to own you. This gets us back to that Heidelberg 110, where the very end of the answer to question 110, it added this. In addition, God forbids all greed and pointless squandering of his gifts. Did you hear that phrase? What did he mean by that? Well, in one sense, our property and our money is ours, but in a truer sense, it is a form, a gift from God. It is from his, prov- from his provision for us. We're just so used to God's good provision, we take it for granted. But the very fact that you've been sitting here for 40-ish minutes just now, breathing freely, your lungs working properly, your heart continuing to beat, is itself a gift from the Creator. It might be common grace, but it's Grace. That very fact that right now we're able to sustain our existence in this moment, simple thing that is essential to living, a heart beating, lungs breathing, a mind working is a gift. And the moment something goes wrong, a bad foot, a sore finger, man, do we complain about it, which means the majority of the time for most of us, these common things we just take for granted when they are gifts. We aren't owed them or deserve them. We have seen people have those taken away way too early. It is a gift from God. See, the Christian knows that everything is a gift from God. Our money is like every other gift from the Lord. It is a gift from God. And you could say, well, wait a second. I've worked hard for what you have. Who gave you the strong back to do the work that you did? Who gave you the strong mind to learn the skills or to understand a truth, or, or a concept, to be the engineer, or to be the doctor, or to be the businessman, or woman, or to be the teacher? Who gave you that? Have you ever met somebody who loses it, or seen somebody who doesn't have that? All of that is a gift from God. See, the Christian knows that every good gift comes from above. Like, we know that, and we say that in abstraction, but what it means is, literally, if you've been breathing the whole time I've been telling this illustration, you just received a gift from the, from the Creator. If you have a full belly, after lunch today, it is a gift from your heavenly father. It is part of his common grace. All the skills, all your resources, they are a gift from God. We possess them for the purpose of loving God and neighbor, of edifying the body of Christ. We don't give everything away, but we use everything to bless and for his purposes. We are given material goods to declare God's grace and pursue God's justice and human flourishing. In its truest form, then, ownership and wealth for the Christian is stewardship. You could even say it's ministry. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism 111. What does God require of you in the eighth commandment? That I do whatever I can for my neighbor's good. Is that the first thing that comes to mind when you think of your money? Like, think about that. What what would the average American think about with their money? Vacations, cars, new house, pleasures, eating out. Is the Heidelberg Catechism really saying that the first thing a Christian would think is, who can I help with this? that I do it, whatever I can for my neighbor's good, that I treat others as I would like them to treat me, and that I work faithfully so that I may share with those in need. Think of centuries of Christians memorizing Heidelberg Catechism 111. We're masters, though, at rationalizing. We just are. We do this with all sins and distortions. If you were here last week, the very first question Satan asked of Adam and Eve is, did God really say? And so we might say, was it wrong to be wealthy or what is too much? Again, those are framing the question, putting us at the center. Maybe the question would be, how can I help my brothers and sisters? How am I progressing the mission of the kingdom of God through the church? How am I making sure that I am not consumed by wealth in a consumeristic culture? How do I avoid, Lord help us, how do we avoid the God of money in the wealthiest country on the planet? Sometimes I wonder if, like the temptation of Jesus by Satan is if the way that Satan lures us away is By giving us all that we want, make them fat and rich, and they will not see a need for God. It makes me almost want to pause as I was preparing this to pray for the depth of reality that this commandment probes. Lord, help us. We cannot even see our wealth. And we're masters at turning a blind eye to the needs of others. We cannot untie ourselves from our materialistic desires, Lord. Be merciful to us. Well, each commandment always shows us three things. Every every commandment, and when rightly understood in light of all of God's word, does three things. It always tells us something about who God is. It shows us his holiness, his perfection. Again, like the analogy I used at the beginning, right? We're looking to the Father to see who he is and how he made us. But every commandment also reveals our sinful condition, right? So immediately these commandments reveal our own sinful condition and disordered loves and our worship of material things, but third, every commandment always shows us our need of Christ. It always shows us our need of Christ. The eighth commandment, therefore, our third th- and last thing this morning, the, eight- the eighth commandment shepherds us to see how Christ is our inheritance. With the spirit as the down payment and that true wealth is found in heavenly treasures. That is such an otherworldly perspective The Bible loves to turn things upside down and most directly in regard to money and possessions. In fact, the Bible condemns the improper use of money and possessions more than any other thing. And it talks about the dangers of wealth more than it talks about the blessings of heaven. Think about that. It talks about the dangers of money more than it talks about the beauty of heaven. What does that tell you about our Father? He knows with what we will struggle. He's shepherding us to see what is true and right and good, to protect us from worshiping any false God that will take rather than give. And in Jesus' words in Matthew 6, the battle of our hearts between God and money is like the Super Bowl. It will be the biggest game, and it happens every day. Every day we will be tempted to serve the master of money and wealth over and against God. When God promises his blessing in the Bible, it is not through health and wealth. We have have so blended the most wealthy country in the world with Christianity. We we even see Christians and denominations and, and others affiliated with our particular faith baptizing such things as if God's blessing is through health and wealth and prosperity and not an eternal inheritance that can withstand suffering and even death. God offers us himself. Christ is our inheritance. The spirit, literally, down payment for a house. The spirit's the down payment. A guarantee that payment will be made in full at the great resurrection and the new creation. And we live knowing that true wealth is not found in the clothes we wear or the car we drive or the house we live in or the places we travel but in Christ and it is a it is a total opposite story of our neighbors of our co-workers of the kids in our classes and middle school and high school and college it is a completely opposite alternate reality. We look like aliens and strangers as our response is actually, Lord, whom can I serve with the gift you've given me? So what does this look like? Let's end with some application. What does obeying the eighth commandment look like? Well, I wonder if we can, a way of framing this is to, to offer a stealing and stewardship set of tests some questions we could ask to kind of probe a bit into our own lives and to allow the Spirit to apply it as He may. The first could be simply the consumerism test. And maybe this would be a question you'd have to ask your spouse. Maybe it'd be your kids that would know or close friends, people that you would actually listen to because I'm guessing you probably wouldn't reveal this to too many people. But the question is this, is my life dominated and or manipulated by money or possessions. Like we live in the most consumeristic times ever. If you're going to watch any March Madness and see Illinois win today in a few minutes, if you're going to watch any of that, you will be inundated with 25% of your time will be telling you of things you need to buy. It's about 25% of your time will be told things you need to buy do you think that doesn't have an impact on you and me? Imagine if all those commercials were just prayer requests for people in your church or just items of need of people in the body of Christ or or, or various realities to remember that Christ is your treasure. How would that form you instead? I, I, I led a parenting class the last growth hour And one of the things I shared with the parents in that class was the statistics say that the the clearest factor that will help your kids know what you think is most important is how you spend money. Statistically, your use of money will reveal more to your kids about what you think is important than anything else. So I know you've had all those great car ride talks. They didn't hold a candle to how they see you use money. They ultimately know about your devotional life and which master you're serving. Here's a second test. The debt test. Is my desire for material things owning me? Here's a stat based on 2021. The average credit card holder. So this isn't just a family, this is individual. The average credit card holder is in debt for $6,000. Just over $6,000. So if you've got two adults with credit card holders in your household, then your household average would be over $12,000. So $6,000 in America per credit card holder. And that has gone up exponentially over the last 20, 30 years. Now, think of this. The average income in Mexico is half of what the average credit card holder owes in debt. It's a little over $3,000. So here's one simple test. If, If you don't know about the consumerist test. If you're not, I'm not sure. Do I think about it too much? Well, then maybe the debt test would help. Am I literally so dominated by material possessions and things that I, I am actually spending more money than I have? And again, I'm not saying this as a financial kind of conversation. I'm just saying this as a heart check regarding the Eighth Commandment. Here's the third test, the generosity test. Am I stealing from people connected to me who are in need? Like when you read the Heidelberg Catechism, or you see Jesus' commandment about not just loving God, but loving neighbor and loving one another in the church, there's a huge force that's on me helping those in need. That's exactly where Heidelberg Catechism 111 took it. The first question is, I have money? How am I helping other people? So the generosity test seems like it fits not only the Bible, but throughout church history. So are you stealing from people connected to you who are in need? Brad Schreiner is an elder in our church and has helped me think through some of these things over the years really, really well. I even texted him this week to remember something he had said not long ago. He says there are two factors that usually dominate a person in regard to money, either greed or fear. Those are the two either, and usually we're on one or the other side, like the two political parties, two responses to money. You're either responding by greed or by fear. By greed, it's because you are addicted to having more things, by fear, because you're addicted to having more security. But usually one of those two, rule of thumb, one of those two are dictating, and he describes it like a, like a tug of war. They're pulling on each other, and he says, when there's a tug of war between greed And fear, there's no slack in the rope, meaning there's no room for generosity. So most of us are fighting either the greed or the fear, and we just don't have enough room for generosity. Finally, the God test. Am I stealing from God? I was speaking to a couple in our church this week, and and they said something to me, and I, I and I'll share what just kind of my thoughts from it. They said, you know, we've been here, what, five or over five years, and we've, we've really never heard you or the church make appeals for money. And I thought about that the last couple of days. And I, in part, that was intentional. And in part, that was a good thing because, number one, we are in a culture that loves to manipulate, specifically under the banner of religion, even Christianity, for material gain. And I was so hesitant to conflate the gospel with any kind of material gain that I never wanted to have that be what's presented, ever. But the risk is, this is what I felt as I walked away from this couple's comment to me, the risk is, as a pastor or as a church, we never address what Jesus talked about all the time. And I haven't known, if I'm being honest, with you, I haven't known how to walk that line. Because I, I never want to err on the side of, well, as long as you're giving to the church. I, I never even bring that up. In fact, I, and this is the case with, 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 with our church, I have no access to what any of you give ever. I, there are several barriers. I have no clue. I know who two people give, my wife and me and my mom. She gives me permission. Basically, if you're living in my house, I know what you give. I have no clue what anybody gives. I've never wanted that to be a factor on how I look at you, or I never want you to feel anything on how you look at me. I have no clue what anybody gives. I do nothing with any of that funding. That's between you and the Lord. Yet when Malachi is giving the word of the Lord in chapter 3, This is what he says, thus saith the Lord. He says this to his people. You are robbing me. You build up your homes, Malachi says, but you will not give to the Lord. And just in God's providence, as I'm working on this eighth commandment, and then I hear that couple say, you know, we really never heard you talk about money. I realize, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing that I've never wanted to conflate the gospel with money in the wealthiest, most money-driven culture in the world. It's a bad thing as if disciples, you never are given help or spoken to about the fact that everything you own belongs to the Lord. And if you have not made God the master you serve, then he would have some words for you. And maybe Malachi has to be the one and not me or just Jesus. But it's worth asking the question, not just the consumerism test or the debt test or the generosity test, but even the God test. Are you stealing from God? And I will never know the answer to that unless you personally told me. And that will stay that way. But the risk is then for your heart, because God will provide for his church and for his people. He will provide that. Here's the risk the risk is not in me, it's not in our church, it's actually in your soul. And based on the 10th or the 8th commandment, I felt it was a worthy thing to raise. I remember looking at my dad. As that fifth grade boy, I think I was 11. And just thinking about myself as being biologically his son and seeing how big and strong he was and wondering, would I be that big and strong one day? His feet looked massive compared to mine. His big hands and his big old head and shoulders. And every Sunday I want to come in here and I want to look at the Father. And I we'll want say, Lord, am I being formed like you? Am I being shaped? Am I honoring you the way that you deserve? Teach us, Father. Help us to see what is true and right and good. At times, like a loving father, discipline your children. At other times, give us comfort because we need it. And I don't know where all of us sit today in this issue of the Eighth Commandment. But I do know that the loving Father will speak to each of us by his Spirit. And let me close by praying for that for us now. Father, thank you for your Word which ministers to us. Thank you for your Spirit, which is better than an x-ray and an MRI, better than any physician, can penetrate into us, body and soul. Thank you that this commandment was filled by Christ That he fulfilled it, and by our faith in him, we have kept the eighth commandment, but only by our faith in him. And yet, help us to see how this commandment speaks about what is true and right and good. It warns us about serving a foreign master. It commends us to love not just you, but neighbor and one another that reflects the work of the gospel in us. Father, help us to lay up our treasures in heaven. Help us to desire you, God, over all the pleasures of this world. Help us to ask the stewardship tests, questions, and where we have sinned or where we have stolen from neighbor or from you, where we have been serving a foreign master. Father, we repent of that and help us to change. Heal us, we pray. Receive this closing song as our own offering. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.